0: I'd fallen asleep watching television. My glasses were still on. Movement in those glasses was what first woke me. I thought one of my roommates was pulling intermittently at the rim. For several moments, I was aware of it, but not fully awake. As my senses returned, I thought it was really strange that whoever it was also had their hand on my forehead. I shot up in terror when it first occurred to me that sharp little pressure points on my forehead were not human fingers. The first terrible images in my mind were of rats or raccoons, but the thing that fell past my face as I sat up felt too small and light. I stared at the floor by the dim light of the television, but the changing shadows seemed messy and chaotic. Where the hell had it gone? There had been something the size of a hand on my head, and it had fallen forward onto our wooden floor, but all I saw was a small, weird distortion. Pulling my glasses off and examining them, I realized that something had taken a bite out of them. What the hell? I leapt up onto the top of the couch and hurriedly put my glasses back on when I realized that something the size of my hand had crawled on my face while I was asleep and tried to bite me. And when it had missed, it had instead been right through the frame of my glasses. The missing portion was smooth around the edge rather than jagged, but I didn't know what that meant for the shape of this thing's jaws. It was time to call in help. Masculinity be damned. Gavin! Tony! I was surprised that Tony came running. He was usually gaming with his headphones on and completely oblivious. This time, he was down in the stairs in a flash. What is it, man? There's something in here. I shouted. Something big and crawly. It bit my glasses. He looked at the mingled frame around my eyes. Something did that with a bite? Yes, and it's somewhere on the floor. He leapt back onto the first step and stared at the gloom-shadowed floor. The movement spooked something to my right and I saw a blur skitter forward. Tony slammed his foot down, crushing it. You got it. I came down from the couch amazed, but he wasn't relieved. He tensed up completely and remained unmoving. Hey, he whispered, pained. Get Gavin. I frowned and noticed the widening dark pool underneath his foot. I pulled out my phone and called Gavin while he tried to turn the lights on, but the switch did nothing. In fact, many of our lights were out. I finally helped Tony sit on the couch and bandaged up his foot as best I could with a moderately clean sock. Upon my third call, our other roommate, Gavin, finally answered. What's up? Are you home? I asked him quickly. Yeah, I'm just getting some work done. Can you guys keep it down? Gavin was pre med and sometimes a snob, but the situation was too dire to get annoyed. Can you come down here? Tony's bleeding badly. What? Really? Okay. A few seconds later, I heard his footsteps upstairs, and then he came down rapidly with materials in hand. He took stock of the situation, stepped around the pool of blood, and approached with a medical eye. He removed the bloody sock. Turn on the lights. I I can't. They won't come on. What the hell's going on down here? He asked with a frown. Whatever. Use the light on your phone. Right. Holding up my phone, I lit Tony's foot. By the strong illumination, he studied the damage. Jagged bits of bloody material poked out and through Tony's foot. With practiced precision, Gavin slowly extracted the pieces one by one before stitching the wounds and wrapping salvaged areas. You really need to get health insurance. I don't have that kind of money, Tony complained. His face strained in bright red against the pain. What is that stuff? What jabbed me? Gavin pulled the last and largest piece out. He wiped the blood away and held it up to the light. Looks like glass. Did you stomp on a cup or something? Tony just looked at me confused. We'd both seen something dart across the floor. There was no way it had just been a rolling drinking glass, right? Or had we just been confused by the low light conditions? The only glass in the room was a big beer stein still on the table to my right. I had some beer earlier, but it was empty now, and certainly not broken. In fact, I saw the skittering motion and acted before the thought even registered in my brain. I brought the giant beer stein to the floor, upside down. I caught it. Gavin tightened the bandage on Tony's foot and then turned around. He froze as he saw what I'd done. What is that? I shined my light on it. There was no mistaking that it was some sort of horrible spider, and the mere sight of it made me shudder. It was as big as I'd imagined, about the size of my fist. It was oddly hard to see, but I chalked that up to it cowering away from my phone's light. Grabbing a thick paper from our coffee table, Gavin slid it under the beer stein and lifted the whole thing. Carrying it far from his body and out of fear and disgust, he moved past the couch and plopped the entire trap onto the kitchen table. He leaned over it, studying the strange spider within. Get some light, for Christ's sake. I ran down to the basement and checked the breakers, but they were all on. Charging back upstairs, I shined my light at the ceiling in the living room. The bulbs were gone. Tony, are you seeing this? Holding his bandaged foot tightly and grimacing, he looked up. Where'd the lights go? I frowned. I'd had a bit too much beer earlier, but I was still starting to sense some certain connections. Guys, Gavin called. Come look at this. I helped Tony stagger over. By the light of his phone, he illuminated the fist-sized spider from behind. I thought it looked weird. It's... Transparent. Up close to the trap, we stared as we watched a small glimmer appear inside the spider's midsection. Something's going on in its cephalothorax, Gavin whispered. The glimmer turned into a glow and then what looked like a small circular candle flame. I had the distinct impression that the transparent spider's stomach was a tiny furnace. My smooth-edged glasses were still distracting in my sight. There was that, and the missing light bulbs, and the fact that the spider had crawled on my face to pull up my glasses. Guys, I think this spider eats glass. Gavin frowned. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Tony limped further into the kitchen while I pointed out what I'd seen. As Gavin and I argued, the glow from the spider reached white hot. We both stopped and stared as it leapt against the inside of the glass beer stein and melted its way right through. We both screamed and leapt back as it charged out. Returning at that moment, Tony brought down a metal frying pan, crushing it. The sound of pressurized, shattered glass boomed through my ears. Spikes of pain shot at my arm, and I screamed once before shining my phone light on a series of small shards sticking from my skin. Trembling and putting them out in a cautious panic, I said what I was thinking. They don't just eat glass. They're made of glass. Gavin shook his head. No way. Spiders made of glass? That's impossible. You saw it making heat in its stomach, I protested, picking out the last couple of spikes from my arm. It melted its way out. It melted my glasses, and the bulbs are all gone. Tony lifted his metal pan defensively. Do you think there are any more? "'How did they get in?' I asked aloud, treading carefully toward the front of the house. "'Our parking was out back, so we almost never used the front door, "'but that didn't mean something else couldn't have. "'My light ran across the mostly wooden door, "'finding nothing out of the ordinary but the front windows. "'The front windows are gone!' "'It was a hot, still night, and we hadn't noticed the missing glass. "'How could we have? The panes were already clear.' but that meant the glass spider had crawled in at most a few hours before. Tony said what I was thinking. Let's get the hell out of here. This is messed up. Gavin shook his head. We have to catch one. Trust me, it's a big deal. We'll get famous. Easy for you to say, I complained. You haven't gotten sliced or jabbed. Do you want to pay for the missing windows? He asked. I bet they're eating Tony's gaming monitor even now. No! Tony shouted, limping up the stairs. I don't have money for another one. Angry that Gavin had so obviously manipulated him, I grabbed a frying pan from the kitchen and ran after Tony. Wait! But he didn't wait. By the time I reached the top of the stairs, he was nowhere to be seen or heard. I flicked the light switch. Nothing happened. Creeping forward my pan at the ready, I tried to listen for that telltale clinking glass skitter. I heard some movement somewhere around me, but they could have been in any room. I tried to think of all the important objects I owned that were made of or contained glass. Should I be rushing to my own room to defend my valuables? I heard a crunch and another high-pitched chaotic little explosion. Tony doubled over in pain as I entered his room. He had his monitor under one arm and his pan in the other. "'Drop it, man, let's just go!' I told him, scanning the dark room for blurry motion. "'No!' he groaned, staggering forward despite little bits of glass leaking blood down his jeans. "'Fine!' I shouted, too filled with adrenaline to argue effectively. Instead, I kept my pan ready and my eyes on the floor as we moved back down the hallway.' It was dark, but distant streetlights gave us sight by pale, lurid orange. When Tony screamed in terror, I realized that spiders didn't necessarily need to use the floor. Whirling around, I saw three glowing little furnaces moving around the monitor under his arm. Were they pissed off enough to attack him directly, or were they just after the glass? If I swung, they'd fracture and completely wreck his arm. But he wasn't thinking about that. He swatted at them. To his credits, he did get them all. Three for three. Even in the dark, he truly had a gamer's hand-eye coordination, and after the initial physical shock of the loud shrapnel bursts fade, I left his monitor on the hallway floor and carried him the rest of the way, fighting tears of sheer horror. By the faintest streetlight orange still reaching us, I could see gobs of his flesh falling from his mingled limb and torso. The metallic stench of blood flooded my senses, and warm stickiness ran down my hands and made it hard to hold him. Pulling his limp body down the stairs, I shouted for Gavin. He made no move to come help. Call an ambulance! I screamed. He stood at the kitchen table, his phone lighting several wire cages. I recognized them as the cages one of our previous roommates had used for a hamster. They'd been left behind after the move. Yeah, I recognized the cages, but... I didn't recognize Gavin. Behind his light, his eyes seemed sharp and intent. We'll do no such thing. What? I screamed, pulling Tony toward the couch. He's seriously hurt. If we call an ambulance, Gavin reasoned coldly, we'll have to tell them what happened. Our discovery will be taken from us, and credit will go elsewhere. No, our one shot at fame and fortune lies in studying these impossible glass spiders. I clenched my fist. We're going to die here, you idiot! Nonsense. They're harmless. They only eat glass. He bit down near one of the cages, and I realized that each one held a trapped spider. Jesus, how many were there? He put his face near furnace-capable pincer jaws, but the glass arachnid within cowered away. See? I was frustrated, but I had no argument. I didn't know what to say. I couldn't think. Instead, I forced myself to say, Help, Tony. He's going to bleed out. Gavin approached, stood over the couch with an icy and calculating glaze, and then returned to his pets. I don't have the tools to save him. He's as good as dead. That's why we need to call an ambulance. And I already told you why we can't. I pulled out my phone. Gavin suddenly turned and brandished what looked like a leg from one of the bigger spiders. Don't be a fool. We can share in this. Escalating this will just force violence Why do you even need money? I screamed at him Why don't you just be a doctor? He wavered in place, his eyes distant Do you have any idea how much debt I've taken Just to go to med school? After three heartbeats of silence I understood You failed out, didn't you? One more heartbeat of silence passed. He rushed to me with a wild look in his eyes. I shined my phone at his face, blinding him, but his stab still struck me in the left shoulder. Falling backwards, I screamed again, hoping some neighbor, any neighbor, would hear and call the police. They never had before, not even for gunshots, but I still hoped. The arachnid leg dagger came down again, and I turned away on the floor. Slicing pain slashed warm heat across my back, and I kicked reflexively. My flailing shoes landed with heavy impact in what felt like his stomach. Forget it, he rasped. Call an ambulance. There won't be any evidence for you. Staggering to the kitchen table, he stabbed into the cages, smashing all but one spider. Upon my feet by then, I opened the front door. The humid and still night beyond waited quietly, offering me escape. Except, I couldn't leave. It wouldn't help. I stumbled around the other side of the kitchen table, avoiding Gavin, and grabbed a heavy knife from the drawer. I took up a position at the back door, blocking his access to the cars while I dialed emergency services. You're not walking away with that spider. I held the knife in one hand while I lifted the phone to my ear. The police need to understand what happened here. No, Gavin shouted. Wild-eyed, he took the last cage and ran the other way. He had just enough space in the living room to reach full speed as he went out the front door. The police did have questions. The EMT had questions, too. I heard later that Tony died on the way to the hospital. By then, I felt nothing but numbness. I guess I purposely didn't speak for a time. I needed to put my story together. After two hours of pretending to be in shock, I finally told them that the construct in the front door had been an ill-conceived art project. That was a lie, of course, but... There was no evidence of the nightmarish arachnids that had invaded our house. I needed a way to make the violence seem accidental, and it turned out my art major was finally good for something. There was no need to search for Gavin. He'd failed to think through the entirety of his threat. Our arachnid invaders had been made of glass, certainly, but they'd still been spiders, and spiders make webs. Apparently, they'd chosen the unused front door for their main web, and it had been weaved completely out of glass, spun finer than razors. I looked out the front door and seen nothing. It had been almost believable. It had turned out to be far stronger than that invisibility belied. At full speed, Gavin had run right through it and fallen onto the sidewalk in front of the house. I'd seen the whole thing, and he hadn't even slowed down. While running, he just kind of slid forward and apart. The cops had shown up to find about three dozen chunks of him splattered onto the cement and grass outside. I've received copies of the recent writings and recordings of Matthew Calder. I say copies because the originals are still in police custody in connection with several ongoing investigations. The writing is presented as is. I literally copied and pasted from the original documents, so aside from formatting, it should be fully representative of what Matt wrote. As for the recordings... I've watched them all numerous times over the last week, taking careful notes of anything that seems important. The summaries of these recordings are written by me as objectively as possible, though. I'm aware I'm too close to this for my own emotions and perceptions to not creep in from time to time. In any case, I'm writing this now out of desperation. My hope is that by distributing a version of what happened to Matt, someone might come forward with more information or... Some new idea that I failed to find on my own. Whether you read this with a mind toward helping or just being entertained by something strange posted on the internet, I ask you please keep an open mind and I thank you for your time and attention. File tbwm1.doc create date 31621. Welcome to the inaugural episode or issue. Ask Sarah what to call it, of Trailblazing with Matt, a new series on your favorite hiking blog. I'm Matthew Calder, and I'm not just new to the website, I'm also new to long-distance hiking in general. I'm athletic, and I've been on hikes since I was a kid, but nothing more than a few miles at a time. And that's kind of the point of this series. Most of you probably know one of the senior editors of the blog, Sarah Burr. What you may not know is that Sarah is also my boo. Check with her on this if this is TMI or too jokey a tone. Since we met two years ago, we've had a ton of fun introducing each other to new things. And of course, one of the first things she started telling me about was how much she loved long-distance hiking in general, and specifically through hiking the Appalachian Trail. I'll be honest, the idea of walking and camping for months kind of terrifies me, but that nervousness and fear is what led to us deciding to document our first section hike together, a 72-mile hike through the Smoky Mountain National Park. We're starting today at Fontana Dam and heading north up the trail with the goal of reaching the other end of the park by next Tuesday or Wednesday. Between Sarah's expertise and my burning desire not to give up, especially in front of her, this should be interesting. While I won't post any of this until we're back home, my goal is to document every day and, when we get back, post an article daily until our saga is done. So if you're reading this on the blog, check back tomorrow for how my first 24 hours went. File TBWM2 doc, create date 3 Welcome back to episode two of Trailblazing with Matt, a series where I, newbie hiker Matthew Calder, go with experienced long hiker Sarah Burr on a week long journey across the section of the Appalachian Trail that crosses the Smoky Mountain National Park. So day one went great, until it didn't. When we started out yesterday morning from the dam, I was full of energy. By four in the afternoon, however, I was really dragging. My feet were sore, I was hungry, despite snacking most of the day, and the last thing I wanted to do was take an hour to set up a camp. Lucky for me, Sarah is a pro. She not only encouraged me, she showed me a good camp prep order while helping me wrestle our tent into shape. By the time the sun was down, we were resting by the fire, listening to the weird night wood noises. Then, before I knew it, I was dead asleep. This morning, I woke up stiff. My feet were still more tender than I would have liked, but after half an hour on the trail, I was feeling great again. A lot of that is the scenery. It really is just a beautiful part of the country. Insert pick. Here's a shot of the waterfall we stopped at for lunch. Insert pick. This is Tony, an older guy that has done through hikes of the Appalachian Trail several times. He met us coming the other way as he was heading south on his latest hike. Really cool dude, though Sarah says starting from Maine in the winter is a little too hardcore even for her. Insert pic. And here's Sarah waving at me to pick up the pace this afternoon. She's using her fancy camera to record my growing fatigue and shame. Insert pic. So yeah, so far I'm loving the trail. I'm about to eat some dinner and get some rest. Talk to you again tomorrow. Three eighteen twenty-one. Hey guys and girls, this one is gonna be a little bit different. So the night went fine overall. Colder, but less weird night noises. So, all things considered, it wasn't too bad. And today had been going well enough, though I can feel my energy level slower to come back compared to yesterday. Sarah says I need to eat more. Maybe she's right. The problems came when Sarah turned on her phone and saw she had a voicemail from work. I won't go into details here, but for some unforeseen consequences, she got to leave the section of the hike and head to Richmond for a few days. What that means for me is I have a choice to make. Do I leave, or do I go on without her? I'll be honest, my first reaction was that I was definitely leaving. I told myself it was to be supportive of her, but this is a work thing with the company that owns the website and she doesn't need any support, at least all from the new contract labor on the blog. No, truth be told, I've been coasting these last three days because I had her as a safety net. But if I'm going to do this, both for the job and for myself, I need to be able to keep going when I don't have her on to hold my hand. So I'm staying out here and finishing the hike. And when she leaves in a few minutes, she promised to let me borrow her badass camera so you might get a high def video vlog next time. If I don't break it. JVC nine three MP4. Date created 319.21. Time 9.23. Matt starts the video awkwardly, jumping the view around as he fiddles with buttons and settings. Once he's satisfied, he turns the lens toward himself, waving it at the camera and introducing himself a couple of times in what looks like an attempt at replicating his friendly greeting from the blog post he had written. He looks tired and stressed, the dark circles under his eyes undercutting the chipper attitude he's working to maintain as he walks along the trail. He says Sarah got to Richmond safely, and that while he'd had some issues setting up camp alone the night before... It had been a good learning experience. Laughing, he says, he learned what not to do, at least. After glancing down the path, he smiles to the camera and says he'll record more later on in the day. 319.21, 13.19. Matt has stopped for lunch. He says that his walk has gone okay so far, other than getting a bit too close to a rattlesnake before he noticed it. He smiles nervously and shrugs, saying the snake warned him and he listened to Mr. Snake. He tells the camera he should have recorded the big fella, but he didn't think about it until a few minutes later. Says his goal is to make fourteen miles today, which would be a major improvement over the prior days, and move him past the halfway mark on the section of hike. I can tell from looking at him that he just wants this to be over. 31921 time sixteen eleven. Matt comes into frame without his normal, forced jolliness. He looks angry and worried, and it doesn't take long to figure out why. He tells the camera that an hour earlier, he'd gone to collect water off the path. When he got close by, he took off his pack and sat it down, carrying just the bottles and the camera as he wanted to make videos on what Sarah had taught him about the best places to get water. It was as he reached the water's edge that he glanced back and saw his pack was gone. He panicked, looking around to see if it could have rolled under some brush or if he saw anyone around that might have messed with it, but there was nothing and no one that he could find. Matt looks genuinely scared as he's talking to the camera now. He says everything was in that backpack. His tent, his sleeping bag, all of his food, other than a couple of bars in his pants. But beyond that, the matches, the map, tablet, and cell phone, they'd all been in there too. Matt laughs with embarrassment, saying he feels like a baby getting so freaked out when he's traveling a marked trail, but it's so big, and aside from the white blaze marks that trace the trail route, he has no real idea of where to go or what's coming up when. He knew there were lean-to shelters up ahead, but he wasn't sure how far it was until the next one, and... He has even less of an idea how to boil water without matches or how to get food. Sighing, he tells the camera that he's sorry and hopes that it isn't a disappointment, but he was going to have to try and get help the next chance he got. Without any of his gear, he just needed to find a ranger station or a person and get off the trail as soon as possible. 319.21, time 1929 matt is using the camera's night vision now and it's apparent from his surroundings that he's found a small wooden shelter to spend the night in while it's clear he's grateful for the place to rest it's also obvious he's considerably more worried than before and he's yet to find a station or run across other people despite having seen other hikers several times on the first few days of his trip the one bright point of the evening was matt's first experience with trail magic, a term he'd said he'd initially learned from Sarah, but had later found was a common experience during long-distance hiking. He said that from what he's heard and read, trail magic could be a lot of different things. Sometimes it was just good luck when you need it, or encountering something really special on the trail. At other times, and more relevant to Matt at the moment, it would be something left behind by another hiker or a kind-hearted soul maybe food or something else of use on the journey ahead. What Matt had found was a small cooler. He held it up to the camera, and it was the size and shape I'd associate with small picnics or live fishing bait. Inside, he found a bag of trail mix and two bottles of water, all which looked well sealed. Matt notes that normally he wouldn't eat or drink things he just found out in the woods, sealed or not, but these were not normal times. And hopefully, he added... It would give him the energy to walk until he found help in the morning. He jumps a little at this point as a branch cracks off in the distance. And when he laughs, his voice is shaky. Say the nights were still spooky, but he was getting used to them. And at least it wasn't like a few nights ago. Crazy as it was, one night, he could have sworn he heard a baby crying. 3.20.21. Time. 14.00. It appears both from the timestamp and Matt's appearance that he's already been walking for hours when he turns on the camera this time. Sitting down next to a tree, he looks exhausted and terrified. For the sake of accuracy, I've transcribed his words in this recording below. (sighs) I... Fuck. I don't know. I, I, I fucked up. I... I didn't sleep for shit last night And so I got up when the sun was up And I got started I kept thinking to myself I have to be close, right? Not to the end, no, but To something A ranger, a hiker, a damn emergency phone Or something, right? But I've been walking for hours Like, I think it's been like Six or seven hours and there's nothing Just more trail, more woods More fucking nothing (laughs) (laughs) I'm really trying not to lose my shit, you know? I know I'm in a national park, and I know plenty of people walk this trail every year. I'm bound to find something soon. Right? I haven't thought about going backward. But I don't know how far it would be until I found something that way either. I didn't pay that much attention when I had Sarah, and I haven't seen anything since she left, and... And I have to be way over halfway at this point. Even if, shit, even if I don't see anything or anyone until I reach the end of the park, it's way closer to keep going than to try and go back. I... Yeah, this, I... I don't know that any of this is going to be on the blog. Maybe it would be interesting, or maybe it would just scare people away from trying this. The thing is, I'm starting to feel less like I'm doing it for the job and more... Fuck. I'm starting to feel like I'm making these recordings so there's a record of what happened to me. I need to go. Turn this off and save battery power. I have a spare left for the camera, but I don't need to waste it on whining. Matt out. Three twenty, twenty one, time, nineteen thirty three. Matt is again sitting in what looks like a wooded shelter. He tells the camera that he considered walking in the dark, but he doesn't know how much charge his headlamp has left and when he found this shelter a little while ago, he decided to stop for the night. The good news is that he's found some more trail magic, this time in the form of a cardboard box containing a small camp stove and a metal pot. He says the camp stove works and he'll be able to boil water and refill both his collection bottles and the water bottles he'd carried from the last shelter. While there's some relief in his voice talking about having fresh water, it fades quickly when he confirms he still hasn't seen any sign of help after walking throughout the afternoon. Three twenty-one twenty-one, 21 Time, fifteen nineteen. Matt is walking up to his shelter silently, showing a 10-foot-long wooden floor surrounded by three plank walls and a wood overhang. Much like the limited views we've gotten from prior nights in a structure along the trail. He pans over to a plastic bin tucked against the inner corner and lets out a rough laugh. Great. More trail magic. I hope they left some food because I'm fucking starving. His voice sounds dry and brittle. And when he's close enough to see what's in the bin, I can hear him start to cry. It's a hunting knife, a flint, and three packs of dried ramen. 32121 time 1725 Matt seems a little in better spirits now. Lit by a small fire, he finally got started with his new tools. He talks about how the ramen was the best thing he'd ever eaten, though he made a point of saving one for the next day. He'd been using the extra space he could make in the camera bag to carry stuff up to this point, but now he's trying to decide if he should carry the bin too or leave something behind. He's very muted now, but his words and actions slow as he stares off camera at the fire he's made. He says he still didn't find anyone today. That he should reach the edge of the park by late tomorrow unless he seriously miscalculated the ground he's covered. But he doesn't want to abandon any supplies he might need if the hike lasts past tomorrow. Steering into the camera, he begins to cry again. I just want to go home. 3.22.21. Time, 18.34. Matt is breathing heavily as he stands over the remnants of shredded wrapping paper in a medium-sized open box. It doesn't make any fucking sense. None of this makes any fucking sense. He then turns the camera towards himself and begins to explain. So, I... I fucking walk all day, okay? And and I should be at the end or seeing some sign that the end is coming up. But nope, just the normal trail markers, the blazes or whatever. So I finally stop tonight because I find yet another fucking shelter. And I'm not complaining, right? Because someone stole my fucking tent. But how many of these shelters are there going to be? 'Cause we didn't see that many back when Sarah was with me. And at first I was like, okay, there's just more on this part of the trail, right? And then when I started finding the trail magic boxes and stuff, I was just happy to find something to eat or drink, but how am I not done yet? Or seeing anybody? And why do all these places have shit that I need? Isn't that weird? Fuck, I know I'm starving and exhausted and probably just getting fucked up paranoid, but it feels like someone's messing with me. But how could they? How is that even possible? I think in the morning, I'm going to try walking into the woods a little. Not far. Not so far that I lose sight of the shelter, but maybe if someone is leaving presents and shit, they live nearby, or I can get to where I need to see a road or something. I don't know. I just... I know I can't do this for much longer. 3.23.21 Time, 7.15 Matt is walking away from the shelter now and moving into the woods behind it. The sun is up, but the light is still dim as he pushes through some brush and into the trees. He doesn't make it far before he notices the gleam of white behind a nearby pair of trees. As he gets closer, it becomes clear what he's found. A small cooler, like you might keep drinks or live bait in. But it's not just that. There are other things thrown out behind the trees as well. A cardboard box. And a plastic bin. What? What the fuck? I... I thought it looked the same, but it has to be. They just them all to look the same, right? I, I can't be... I can't be going in a fucking... I've been following the trail the whole time." The camera shakes as he looks closer at the containers. If they aren't the same ones that he'd found gifts in on prior nights, they are identical twins. Matt picks up the cooler and hurls it into the trees with a scream of rage before spinning away and stalking back toward the shelter. He's moving so fast now that he almost steps on the thing that had been left on his return path. A photograph. An old-fashioned instant film photo that looks untouched by the elements or time. Something that, based on repeated viewings, I'm confident wasn't there when he left the shelter moments before. He picks it up and murmurs a curse under his breath, talking to his only companion, camera as he shows at the picture. It's a photo of Sarah standing on a street corner in what I've learned is Richmond, Virginia. Based on her expression and the angle of the photo, it doesn't appear she knows the picture has been taken. What the fuck is this? Matt is almost running back to the shelter now, and as he rounds the corner, the camera spies a new gift that's been left behind. A small metal lockbox with a key sticking out the front. The view spins and jolts as Matt runs around the shelter, screaming for whoever is behind this to come out to quit fucking with him. But with no answers, he goes back to the box and crouches down before turning the key with a trembling hand. Inside the box, there are two items. The first is the second instant photo. This only appears in front of the camera for a moment, but a freeze frame shows it was taken in what looks like a hotel room with both a bed and the edge of a small table in view. On the bed is Sarah, hands and feet bound, mouth gagged, eyes wide with bleak horror. Matt might have lost his mind right there, but for the second item. It's his cell phone. Snatching it out of the box, he sets the camera down as he tries turning it on. After a tense moment of silence, it lights up and beeps, and Matt is heard softly praying for a signal. He's only partially in frame during the start of the process, but moves more into view in what I assume was an attempt to get a better reception. Apparently satisfied, he shakily makes a phone call. Come on, baby. Come on, pick up. Please be a joke. Please pick up. There's no answer. He grips the phone tighter, and based on the three button presses followed by a fourth higher up, I think this was him trying to call 911. Again, no answer. Shaking with fear and frustration, he keeps trying to call someone over and over. Based on his actions and the overall context, I think he spent the next few minutes trying to reach anyone and his contacts, all with no luck. At least until the last call when the phone began to ring. Hello? A voice is heard on the speakerphone, faint, but clearly that of a young woman. Oh god, Laney, can you hear me? Matt, is that you? I can barely hear you, yeah. Lady, please, please just listen. I need you to call the police for me. This is not a joke, okay? I, my girlfriend, her name is Sarah Burr. I think she's in Richmond, Virginia, and someone has her. Like, kidnapped her, and it's going to hurt her or something. He paused for a moment. Are you still there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, Okay, so, I'm like, I'm in the Smoky Mountain National Park on the Appalachian Trail. I'm lost somehow, so please do two things. Call the police in Richmond and ask them to find her, Sarah Burr. And then call the park service for the Smoky Mountain National Park and ask them to come find me. I'm lost, I'm hungry, and I need help. I'm so sorry, Matt. Matt seemed to recoil slightly at this. Sorry. No, you don't need to be sorry. I'm sorry I had to call you. I swear I tried. Everyone else, but you're the only person that would go through. I swore I'd leave you alone, and I'm sorry I'm breaking that promise, but if you don't help them, I think me or Sarah might die. Someone is doing this to us. I don't know who or why, but they are. His name his name's Bertie. What? Say that again, Elaine. What was that? A crackle, and then I said his name was Bertie. Matt freezes for a moment before responding. Are you? Are you saying you put someone up to this? When the young woman speaks again, her voice is trembling. I... I didn't mean to. I... uh, A few months after we broke up, my grandmother died. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I heard about it through Stu, and I wanted to call, but I didn't think I had the right, and, and, but, but I don't understand. What does that have to do with what's going on with Sarah? What's happening with me? When she died, my grandmother left me something. She called it Birdie the cat, but it's not a cat. Not really. It's, well, that doesn't matter. What matters is five days ago was the anniversary of when my grandmother died, and that's when it asked me for a name. Laney, I don't know what this is, but he asked me for a name, and I already decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to give him one. I didn't know... What he'd do if he got one, and I didn't want to hurt anyone, but there's a pause and then the woman goes on. But when he asked, I thought of you. I've forgiven you for cheating on me. It sucks, but I know it happens to some people, but I don't think I've ever forgiven you for lying to me about it, never admitting it at the end. Somehow that seemed worse. More disrespectful than you finding some other girl you liked better or seeing her behind my back. I swear, I never... Her voice is colder now. Don't make it worse by lying again. Bertie showed me what you did. It was with Sarah, wasn't it? Matt's shoulders slumped as he nods bleakly. Yeah, it It just happened. I never meant to hurt you. As shitty as it sounds, I felt like just lying about it was protecting you somehow. That's convenient. But I swear, I'm sorry, I really am. Just, please don't hurt us. Or have this guy hurt us. Call him off. There's a small laugh over the phone. Matt, you don't understand. I can't stop him. I didn't even want to give him your name, or I don't think I did, but once it was in my head, well, a moment later I heard myself saying it. It was like I was in a dream where I could see what I was doing, but I could not stop it. I said it, and before I could even try and take it back, he was gone. Matt slams his fist to the wooden floor next to the phone. What the fuck is wrong with you? You hire a fucking hitman because of an old boyfriend who cheated on you? You're going to prison, you crazy bitch. Call this off now, get us both home safely, or you're fucking dead. You hear me? Her voice trembles when she answers. He's not a man. He's not a man. Whatever. Get me out of here. Matt, where do you think you are? At a shelter? Stuck in some kind of fucking loop on the Appalachian Trail? Don't act like you don't know where I am. I don't know how you're doing all this, but you know where I fucking am. There's a moment of silence. I do, but it's not there. He's showing me where you are and you're, I know this won't make sense, but you're inside him inside. You, you really are a crazy fucking bitch. Listen, you he's taking you somehow and you're inside him and he's here with me, but he's also with her and in there with you. I don't want to see this to know this, but he's showing me anyway. He says, I have to see so I can understand. I'm sorry. I only gave him your name, not hers. But I don't think he cares. I asked him to make it quick, at least, but he's just laughing. Matt goes to yell into the phone again when a shadow falls over him. Looking up, his face contorts into a scream as the camera crackles and then dies. On March 24th, 2021, Richmond police began to search for my brother in connection with the brutal murder of Sarah Burr in the downtown hotel room. Cleaning staff had found her bound, gagged, tortured, and butchered with a large hunting knife. While there were no witnesses, my brother being in the hotel room or Richmond at all, his fingerprints were the only ones found on the murder weapon. My understanding is that the current theory is that my brother somehow followed Sarah to Richmond, murdered her, and wrote and filmed a bizarre narrative of being lost in the woods to try to create some kind of demented alibi. As of me writing this, he has still not been found. What was found was his cell phone, his tablets, and the camera, all in a neat little stack inside one of the shelters along the trail. There's no explanation for how they got there, particularly since they were located miles away from the point that Sarah left the trailhead for Richmond. The other thing that the investigators have failed to explain is why there's no record of Matt using his cell phone to try and call people or his lengthy phone conversation with the woman, which I know would have been his ex-girlfriend, Eleni Roman. Police claimed to have checked her phone record as well as Matt's, but there was no sign of the call being made on either side. One of the detectives interviewed her over the phone as well, but she supposedly acted surprised that Matt was missing and said she hadn't spoken to him in well over a year. Of course, I know that's bullshit, so I went to talk to her myself. I'd never met Elaine in person before, but I recognized her when she opened the door. She didn't look surprised by my visit or have any real questions as to why I was there. Instead, she just greeted me and gestured for me to sit down on the front porch. She was all dressed up with her purse in hand, and as she pulled the door shut, she warned me she only had a moment before she had to leave for a party. So you're here about Matt, right? I tried to keep my expression neutral, but I could feel myself glaring at her. You know I am. What happened to him? She rolled her eyes slightly. I have no idea. I told the police the same thing. You're lying. I saw the video of you talking to him on the phone. Shaking her head, she gave a small laugh. (laughs) Look, I don't know what to tell you. I haven't seen or talked to him since we broke up. I'm sorry he's missing or whatever, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. When I stared at her, she looked away and stood up. Anyway, I have to be going. My father just got out of the hospital, and we're throwing him a welcome home party. Standing up myself, I could hear the sarcasm in my voice. Congratulations. At least some people are lucky. Turning back to me, I expected to see anger in Eleni's face, but instead I saw a mixture of sadness and fear. It was more than luck. He had late-stage Parkinson's and was dying of sepsis. Doctors don't think he'd last beyond a few more days. Then he suddenly not only beat the infection, but while well, the Parkinson's is gone. They've run tests, brought in experts, but they've no idea how it happened. Her lip trembled as she tried to smile. I guess there's a lot of things that can't be explained or really understood. She turned to walk away when I grabbed her arm. We're not due. I froze as I felt a hand settle on me from behind. Out of the corner of my eye, I almost thought I saw a white glove on my shoulder, but then the vision was gone while the weight remained. Eleni didn't look back, but gently pried my hand loose from her arm as she spoke. Go home, please, and don't come back. I'm sorry for what happened to Matt, but it was outside my control, and well, I don't want to see anything happen to you. As if to punctuate her point, the invisible thing gripping my shoulder squeezed painfully for a moment before fading away. I drove back to my hotel and sat in the car, shaking. I'm no closer to understanding what happened to my brother or Sarah or what Eleni did to set in motion. In some ways, I'm grateful for the dead end as I'm scared to go on, but then I think of Matt, lost and alone and terrified in ways I've never known. So I write this to record what I've seen and learned. I'll post it online in case it can somehow help my brother. And then I'll try to ignore the small voice in my heart. The one that hopes it all comes to nothing. But there are no more leads to chase or trails to go down. Because I don't know where those paths lead, the voice tells me. Or what might be waiting for me. At the end. So here's how to play the game called Little Coffin. First, the player makes the coffin. It can be made out of whatever meets certain requirements. First, it needs to be a single foldable sheet one can make a small box out of. It can be cuts, but one can't cut it up and put separate pieces back together. The final coffin has to be made from a single folded sheet, durable enough to last the day in the ground, and most importantly, made by the player. If it's made by someone other than the person playing the game, it won't work. Second, the player digs the grave. Again, there are rules for how this is done. The player must make the grave just like the box. It needs to be at least a foot deeper than the top of the coffin they made. They should use a ruler or tape measure to check because less than that and it won't work. And it cannot be dug in an actual cemetery or any other place that is considered hollowed ground. But it must be in a place where there has been a recent death. Preferably, violent and or multiple deaths have occurred there. The more recent, the better. Again, if these rules aren't followed, the game will not work. Third, they must cough a length of their hair at least big around as a drinking straw and an inch long. If their hair is shorter than this, then they can use the alternative method. Melt down wax until one has the equivalent of four tablespoons. Sprinkle a good amount of one's hair into the wax and roll it into tubes as it cools. The tube containing the hair should be, again, at least as big around as a drinking straw and an inch long. Fourth, the player needs to prepare the coffin to be buried. This means putting their note inside the coffin, sealing the top with tape, and there should only be one seam or opening in the coffin, but if it has more than one, they should all be sealed with tape that is signed so it can't be easily replaced. The player then puts the box in the grave and covers it up. Near the end of filling the grave, the player takes their cut hair or wax tube with hair in it and puts it in the grave dirt where the top of the hair or wax It's just above the surface when the grave is complete. The burial needs to occur between noon and 1pm or it won't work. The player can't tell anyone else they're doing this or where the coffin is buried at any point during the process or it will not work. After the burial is complete, the player should come back to the grave at midnight the following day. In other words, about 36 hours later. They dig up the coffin and find what's waiting for them. If they've done everything properly and without help from anyone else, they should have an answer from beyond the grave. The player can ask any question they like, but only one question will be answered. If a player finds the note in the coffin unchanged, they should go back to the above rules, as they've likely broken at least one of them. Once the question is answered, the player will understand more. So. Here's how to play the game, Big Coffin. First, one makes a coffin. The size can vary, but it should be at least three feet across and tall and six feet long to be on the safe side. Using a durable wood is recommended. Oak or cedar are good options, but the main thing is avoiding things with low density and flexibility. Use wood screws, not nails. Nails can be pried loose or pulled out much easier, compromising the integrity of the coffin. The player should not buy a coffin or have someone else make it for them. Doing it on their own is part of the game. Second, one digs the grave. It should be deep enough that there are at least 5 feet of earth on top of the coffin when the player is finished burying it. The burial site for the big coffin should be a place that is isolated and easy to access. Third, the player should try to identify an area that has three things. Decent population density rural, and or secluded areas nearby and a recent local tragedy where multiple people were killed. The tragedy location is very important. It needs to be an area that has little to no security and is also remote and or not frequented at night. Fourth, the player must distribute the rules of the little coffin game in that area through discreet but pervasive channels. They must then set up trail cameras or other means of surveillance to reliably watch for anyone coming to perform the first half of the Little Coffin game. Once a Little Coffin player and burial site has been identified, the Big Coffin player must wait for their return on the second midnight after burying their Little Coffin. If the Little Coffin player has followed the rules, they are alone. The player then collects them and transports them to the Big Coffin burial site. The Little Coffin player is secured in the coffin. The big coffin player must ensure that the little coffin player is conscious prior to closing the coffin. This is both to ensure that they are aware of what is happening and to give them their answer from beyond the grave. The answer, regardless of their question, is always the same. The answer is death. The big coffin player then completes burying the coffin and leaves the burial site for the last time. If everything has been done correctly, the Big Coffin player will be contacted electronically one week later. The email will be indistinguishable from junk mail other than the fact that the email metadata will somewhere contain the words Dark and Path. The player then replies with two words. Another step. After the reply, they will be contacted again, more personally. The above two documents were found hidden on my daughter's hard drive last month. I never would have found them, but after her disappearance and the police's refusal to help me find her because she was 21 and there was no obvious signs of a crime, I hired a private investigator. He interviewed her friends and college faculty, but it wasn't until he searched her laptop that these two games were found. He says the files originated from an Onion site on the dark web. At first I thought he was joking or trying to pump me for more money. It sounded like something from a bad movie after all, but when I looked at him, I could tell he was serious. Deadly serious. And as he talked, I realized he wasn't asking for money. He was giving me a refund. He said he didn't know much about all this, but he'd heard enough over the years to be worried, and after talking to the woman that did his tech and internet forensic, he knew enough to be scared. He said he didn't want any part of this case or dealings with me and my daughter. And he hoped I found her, but he was out. The envelope he gave me had printouts of the two games and my retainer, but nothing else. No explanation for what it all meant or how it was supposed to help me find my little girl. I was angry and half crazy with grief, and I convinced myself this was all part of some long con where I, believing the PI had secret knowledge and insight, begged him to work for me again for more money. Enraged at the thought of him holding out on me, I called him. Look, I already told you. I knew what you said. And I know that you're either withholding information from me or you're full of shit, so which one is it? Hey, I gave you back your money. I don't owe you shit. Now, if you don't, is my little girl buried somewhere? Is she? I heard a heavy sigh, and for a moment, I thought he was going to hang up, but then he began to speak. No, or I don't think so. Based on it being downloaded onto her computer and connected internet activity, I think she was the one that was looking for the games and found them. It's part of a larger thing, I think. I'm told it's an internet cult. Very hush-hush, very dangerous. That She wouldn't do that. She must have gotten tricked. She always liked games. I bet someone else got her to play the little coffin game. I I have to find her before it's too late. She can't be Bert. Sir, sir, listen, all that you're saying, that may be, I can't say for sure, but what I can tell you is that if she's been buried for two weeks, she's already long dead. And besides, I don't think that's what happened here. You son of a bitch, you don't know. You poke around a girl's laptop and what, you think she's in this, this, this cult cult? What I think doesn't really matter, as I'm no longer on the case, but what I can tell you is this. A week before your daughter went missing, a high school girl named Brandy Lester disappeared. I looked into it. No signs of where she went, but the cops talked to her best friend. Brandy had told the friend that she'd found a new game on a local message board. A secret game that was supposed to let her talk to ghosts or something. She wouldn't give any details, but it sure sounded like someone that was trying to play Little Coffin. So? It sounds like these psychos were trying to get people to play it. Maybe that poor girl is just like my Jenny. Mm Mm-hmm. What? Spit it out. What are you implying? I'm not implying anything. I'm just giving you some advice. You might need to accept the possibility that your daughter was playing the other game. Big Coffin. And listen... And, if she was, maybe she doesn't want to be found. Either way, I'm out. I'm sorry for your loss or whatever, but I don't want the people she's tied up with looking in my direction. I'm too old to be watching over my shoulder all the time. Maybe you are too. I went to say more, but he would already hung up. In the weeks after that phone call, I made no real progress either on my own or hiring someone new. I finally called the old PI again, ready to bite the hook and pay him double, triple if he'd just keep trying to find Jenny. When he didn't answer after a couple of days, I went by his office. It was empty. Not just closed, but stripped down and bare with no sign out front or furniture inside. I even double-checked I hadn't somehow gone to the wrong place, but no, just two weeks earlier... It had been a private investigator's office. Now it looked sterile and abandoned, the only sign of life, a bit of graffiti scratched onto the side of the bottom step, like a leftover hieroglyphic on the wall of a tomb. I saw some of that same graffiti on my driveway tonight, a roll of symbols and black chalk that looked like nonsense to me, but then again, I don't think I'm who they're meant for. I tell myself I'm overreacting I'm stressed and guilty and terrified I've lost Jenny for good but I tell myself I'm overreacting I'm stressed and guilty and terrified I've lost Jenny for good whether it's to a secret grave or a secret life looking out into the dark as I write this I wonder if anyone is out there looking in Sarah's shadow among the shadows I can't say for sure All I have is questions, after all, and as the night deepens, only one thing seems to grow more and more certain. The answer is always the same.